You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. We can grow renewables as fast as we want, but unless that leads to fossil fuel decline, for the climate, it really doesn't matter. 100% of the incremental demand growth will come from wind and solar. For March 25th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is part two of our coverage of the Working Group 3 portion of the IPCC's sixth assessment report, also known as AR6, which was published on April 4th, 2022. For a proper introduction to this massive report, which is thousands of pages long, listen to part one in episode 172 before listening to this episode. The Working Group 3 section, which they call Mitigation of Climate Change, is where the detail about energy transition is located in AR6. Working Group 3 assesses how various solutions to climate change can reduce emissions and explores ways to sequester greenhouse gases. In Part 1, we discuss some of the major advances in AR6 over the AR5 report of eight years ago, such as the gaps between our national climate action ambitions and what is really needed to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees C, and some ways that those gaps can be closed, how market-based financial approaches can be harnessed to reduce carbon, the importance of equity and just transition strategies, the challenge of path dependency and technology lock-in, how political economy can inhibit taking action on climate, the roles that non-government actors and individuals can play in the transition, and the various ways of decarbonizing transportation and providing better low-carbon mobility. In this episode, we welcome back our friend Glenn Peters of the Cicero Center for International Climate Research in Oslo, Norway, who is one of the lead authors of the Working Group 3 report. Longtime listeners will remember Glenn from his explanation of the carbon budget in episode 57, and from episode 112, where he explained the various scenarios for global warming, what they mean, and the current trajectory for climate change. Glenn was a lead author of Chapter 3 of AR6, titled Mitigation Pathways Compatible with Long-Term Goals. So today we'll discuss the latest figures for the remaining carbon budget and explore the probabilities for limiting warming to 1.5 and 2 degrees C. And, as I explained in Episode 172, although the pathways to mitigating climate change are not only about energy, since this show is about the energy transition, I'm just going to focus on the energy aspects of the report in today's conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll try to piece together what really happened with a negative price auction for floating solar in Portugal. We'll revisit the largest floating solar array in the U.S. We'll review France's woes with its aging fleet of nuclear power plants. We'll applaud the approval of two new transmission lines that will bring more renewable power to New York City. And we'll consider the implications of a new California rule aimed at accelerating the adoption of zero-emissions vehicles. But before we go to the interview, announcements, 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 we'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest licensee, the University of Aberdeen. Consistently ranked among the top 200 universities in the world, the University of Aberdeen is a public research university that has been turning out world leaders and luminaries since 1495, and we're so pleased to have them using our show. Welcome. 
And if you're in the energy business and are looking for talent, or you're looking for your next career in energy, don't forget to check out our job board. Just in the past couple of weeks, I see new listings for a staff scientist with an environmental organization, an analyst with a group making venture investments into climate change solutions, numerous engineering roles, and positions in sales and marketing. There's something for everyone there, so check it out. And now, our conversation with Glenn Peters, recorded April 11th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Glenn, to the Energy Transition Show. It's great to join you. Third time lucky. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as you know, it's hard to know where to begin with a report that weighs in at over 3,000 pages. But since you contributed to Chapter 3, which is on mitigation pathways compatible with long-term climate goals, today I wanted to explore how the warming scenarios and our various activities, including the energy transition, can help us limit global warming. And so just to get straight to the headline findings, based on the pledges made under the Paris Climate Agreement, known as the Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, the world is still really not on track to limit warming to 2 degrees C, let alone 1.5 degrees C, are we? No, that's pretty much a good summary. We're doing better than we thought we were doing, but we're still a long way off 1.5 and and 2 degrees. But I can sort of start from the top with the headline messages from scenarios. So the high-end scenario is four degrees. We're not heading there. And to head there, we would have to reverse the current trends and stop deploying renewables and, and so on. If you look at the current policies that are in place where they're heading, something like 3.2 degrees, there's a bit of a range around that, which is probably a bit on the high end. We can discuss that later. And coming to the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions. That's a little bit under three degrees, 2.8 degrees, but of course a range. And one of the headlines around the NDCs, which is quite important, was if you follow the NDCs out to 2030 and then slam on the brakes, you won't be able to get to 1.5 degrees. So 1.5 degrees is no longer feasible if you just follow the NDC. So that's a big sort of headline that was focused on in the report. And then to get to 1.5 degrees from where we are today, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And that's mainly what the report is about. Yeah, we'd have to peak emissions like now to stay below 1.5, right? Yesterday. Yesterday, right. <laughs> the report actually has some funny wording around that. If you look closely, in it talks about emissions peaking between 20 and 2025 and has some language with the latest 2025 or something like that which is a bit of a modeling quirk, which would have been quite nice if it didn't make it into the summary for policymakers. Mm. But the background there is these models have five-year time steps. And so 20 is a time step, 2025 is a time step. And so there's a little bit of ambiguity on where that peak would be. Ah. So all the scenarios peak in 2020, but because of the time step they did 2020, 2025, now we have all these headlines in newspaper, in you know, media articles saying, well, we can peak in 2025, right? which is not at all the story. <laughs> yeah, because it's everyone's preference that the time we have to peak is still comfortably in the future. And nobody wants to hear that we've already kind of missed the window. But I guess a wink's as good as a nudge when you're doing this kind of modeling. All right. Well, what are some of the energy transition recommendations from the sixth assessment that you would highlight as being particularly salient or different from the fifth assessment, which was released eight years ago? Yeah, in a sense, it's sort of a boring answer in that there's nothing new. There's no magic way to get to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. But that's a little bit exaggeration. But 
the big broad brush strokes fossil fuels have to go down coal oil and gas have to go down renewables and clean technologies all have to grow rapidly and there's going to be some nuanced discussion about carbon dioxide removal and how much of that we need so that was the case in ar5 eight years ago whenever it was and it's still the case today even just more urgent although you can have a much more nuanced picture at this and what i did the other day is i took the scenarios from the fifth assessment report on a figure and put the scenarios from the sixth assessment report on a figure and just looking at them visually what's the difference hmm. and it's quite clear that ar6 this recent assessment report has a lot less high-end scenarios so that top end of the figure is quite sparse compared to in the last assessment report. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is at the bottom end. So in the fifth assessment report, there were basically no 1.5 degree scenarios. There were a couple that just went under underneath 1.5 just by chance, if anything. And now we have one 200 or something scenarios that are below 1.5 degrees. So essentially the whole scenario space has come down which is good because, you know, we're making progress, things are happening. So that's good. But it's also interesting that the less we reduce emissions, the more ambitious our target gets. Hmm. And just another important aspect, which the co-chair of the Sixth Assessment Report is quite often clear of highlighting, is that the scenario chapter is one chapter out of 17 chapters. Yeah. And there's many sector chapters, policy chapters and finance chapters and so on. And that's something sort of new since AR6 hmm. is that there's a lot more detail in other chapters. Well, I want to delve into the question of like the distribution of scenarios in a moment. But first, I think we should just really try to get clear on this one point. Are we using up our remaining carbon budget faster or slower than we were when AR5 was published? We're using it up as fast as ever, is uh -huh. the short answer. Okay. You could say at an accelerating rate. So our emissions are higher. And even though the growth has slowed, they're still growing at 1% or 2% per year on average in the last decade. So that means that we're using the carbon budget as fast as we ever have. Although, you know, a little bit of good news, I guess, in a sense, is in the fifth assessment report, that was the first time the carbon budget was really assessed. And the estimates were, let's say, a little bit crude. Those estimates were refined much more in this special report on 1.5 degrees from 2018 mm. and also in this report. So particularly for 1.5 degrees, the budget is a bit more generous than it was compared to the fifth assessment report, but we're still using it up as fast as ever. Gotcha. So 500 billion tonnes is the approximate size of the budget and we use about 40 billion tonnes a year. Okay, so quick head math, that's what, 12 years? Something like that, yeah. Hmm. Well, given that I should say a couple of years have come off since that number was first estimated, so 2030 is okay. at current emission rates, thereabouts. Okay, and if you imagine the way that we would have to reduce and then bring emissions down to zero, it's going to be some sort of a curve, and so you don't go from... 60 to zero, <laughs> you have to slowly ramp it down or maybe quickly ramp it down, but it doesn't make a step change. So, so that implies that we really need to be seeing the rate of carbon emissions slowing before we get to the point where it slows down and stops. Yeah. So if you take a straight line from where we are today, 
down to zero so you can think about it like a triangle yeah. then you have to hit zero in about early 2040s for this carbon budget and off the top of my head i think the number is about 1.5 billion tons per year so if you reduce your emissions 1.5 billion tons per year every year then you will get to zero around about the early 2040s Right. So if we're emitting 40 billion tons a year now, at some point we need to see that go to 38 and 35 and <laughs> keep dropping, right? Yeah. So the rule of thumb number is about a 50% reduction each decade, actually. So 50% mm. by 2030, another 50% by 2040. So these are pretty rapid reductions. And if you work that out on an annual basis, what would that be? So if you make it relative to where we are today, yeah. it's something of the order 5% per year. Okay. Measuring growth rates is always a challenging one because the right. growth rate changes over time. But in a sort of linear trend sense, it's around about 5 or 7% per year, which is roughly the same as the drop we had in 2020 because of corona. Okay. And of course, that went down for all the wrong reasons. Right. But we have to have those reductions while still being able to drive our cars and go to work and so on. So Right. So once again, using quick head math, that's sort of like 2 billion tons per year. It needs to be declining. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 1.5 to 2 billion tons a year. Okay. Well, one difference in AR6 that stood out for me is that it seemed to offer at least a partial response to the criticisms that I've expressed on this show and that I think other people interested in the energy transition have expressed. I've been disappointed that the IPCC didn't seem to have any scenarios that acknowledge the actual progress that the world has made and is making on energy transition with updated data on the costs of solutions like wind and solar, particularly because the data in AR5 was just woefully out of date. It was really, really old and was not keeping up with such a rapidly advancing field and rapidly declining costs as we've been seeing in the real world. AR6 also notes that the current policies put us on track for around 3 degrees C with a range of 2.2 to 3.5 degrees C across the current policy scenarios and acknowledges that the climate policies are now in place rather than just continuing to refer to these no policy scenarios that used to be sort of the dominant form and treating the extreme warming scenario of RCP 8.5 with its four or five degrees of warming as if it were really just as likely or even more likely than the more moderate scenarios that track closer to two or three degrees C. In fact, this report explains that to get to warming over 4 degrees C by 2100, as you just mentioned a moment ago, would imply reversal of the current technology and policy trends and notes that there are many pathways in the literature, cost-effective pathways, that show how to limit global warming to 2 degrees C with no overshoot or to 1.5 degrees C with limited overshoot. So there's a substantial body of literature in this report saying that limiting warming to 2 degrees or even 1.5 degrees cost-effectively is actually possible. And that seems like a much more optimistic message than we ever heard in AR5. So on the whole, I'm feeling a little bit better about AR6 actually being useful to policymakers than I was about AR5. Would you agree with my impressions on that? Or would you share my optimism? And do you think those changes were an intentional response to the criticism of AR5? Yeah, there's a few different things to unravel there. So, Well, I'm known for long, complex questions, you know. <laughs> but I can give short answers. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but there's two parts of this question, really. And if you think about it from a mitigation perspective, a nice point of reference 
is to go back to this special report on 1.5 degrees from 2018 and to see what it says about high-end scenarios. And this is before we had all these RCP 8.5 discussions and so on. And if you search through the chapter two in that report, which is about mitigation scenarios, it mentions it a couple of times, RCP 8.5 or high-end scenarios. Uh, I think one is a reference and one is in some context of climate modeling or something. Because for mitigation pathways, these high-end scenarios don't really make sense. And as you were sort of saying, current policies are shifting us off those pathways. So mitigation modelers aren't really interested in these high-end scenarios. Just a, another interesting thing, which I checked the other day, is what did it say in the fifth assessment report eight years ago about current policies and where we were heading? And it said based on the Cancun pledges, which were a reference to 2020. This report was from 2014, so that makes sense. But based on those pledges, it said that we would likely stay below three degrees by the end of the century. So also in AR5, if you look at the mitigation perspective, we were not talking about high-end scenarios, at least. So a lot of these high-end scenarios, high-end warming levels are really coming from the sort of what's called the working group one community, the physical science community, mm. putting these high-end scenarios into their climate models, I guess, with the best intentions. But from a mitigation modeler, energy system modeler, it just makes no sense to talk about these high-end scenarios because they are just so far off where we are actually heading. Right. So in that sense, you could, I think in the last few years, and maybe a lot because of people like you, and others explaining where we are heading is quite different to these high-end scenarios that we've certainly made progress. And hopefully the discussion has made progress. You know, I'm really glad that you see that change in tone and that change in focus as well, that I'm not just imagining it because I think there was a bit of a cottage industry since AR5 and journalism especially that emphasized these extreme climate doom scenarios. And I think that the journalistic community with AR6 is more challenged now to actually pay attention to the details and the nuances rather than just going to the most extreme part of the scenarios and highlighting that. Like they really have to start paying attention to things like gigatons per year and how many degrees of warming do you get under different scenarios and what are the various policies that contribute to this stuff. Because it is a very complex system we're talking about here. It's global. It includes all sorts of sources of emissions. And as I've said in the preamble to this show, as well as the previous show on AR6, we're just focusing on the energy transition part of it. But there's a whole nother multiple bodies of literature out there that have to do with land use policy and agriculture and all sorts of things. So I think it's important that AR6 has made this advance, I guess I'll call it, toward explaining in a more accurate way where we are in terms of our technologies and in terms of the state of the market. And as you mentioned a moment ago, becoming a little more precise about the carbon budgeting. So I think this is, on the whole, more helpful to policymakers. Yes, I'd agree with that. Although we've also shifted some of the extreme nature to the other end of the spectrum as well. So I agree with all you've just said. But then if you look at the other side of the equation, so 1.5 degrees, in the fifth assessment report, we basically had no 1.5 degree scenarios. Models sort of struggled to get below two degrees. Now we have every model can get to 1.5 degrees and we have all these crazy ways of getting to 1.5 degrees. 
And so that sort of feasibility discussion, if you like, is sort of shifted over to mm. the 1.5 end of the spectrum, mm. which is an interesting shift. But I think this was a good shift because it changes where the debate is. And, you know, this concept of the Overton window, the, the realm right. of possibility has been shifted. And you could say that it's much more likely that we would get into a 1.5 degree or a 2 degree space now compared to what it was let's say, eight years ago in AR5, right. where we thought two degrees was not possible. So we've certainly shifted the focus of the discussion, which overall is a very good thing if we want to achieve aggressive climate targets. Yeah, absolutely. And even though there's now a whole lot more scenarios, as you say, that are clumped toward that sort of 1.52 degree range, that are cost effective, as I mentioned earlier, and feasible, I think it's also easy to misinterpret that as saying that it would be easy. Just because we have a lot of scenarios that can take us in that direction doesn't necessarily mean that we can do them or that they're going to be more likely or that policy is going to take us there, right? That's right. It doesn't happen by itself. So the remaining budget like we were talking about for 1.5 degrees is extremely small. So there is no room for error. You have to do everything right, every country, every sector, from now to 2050 or whatever to get to 1.5 degrees. Yeah. And we're probably not so good at communicating that challenge, but then to get to two degrees may be quite a bit easier. There's quite a big difference between how hard it is to get to 1.5 and to two degrees, Mm. which we lose sight of a little bit. Yeah. Well, even so, I think there are some new methodological issues with AR6 that we should probably delve into before we proceed further with discussing the findings. To begin with, in the AR6 framework, there are some different concepts and terms than were used in the last assessment report. So I think it'd be helpful to understand those before we get into the discussion on what the scenarios mean. IPCC AR6 has a new classification scheme for emission scenarios that groups them into warming levels called C1 through C8. Then there are these illustrative mitigation pathways, or IMPs, which are in addition to the SSP and RCP scenarios that our listeners learned about in episodes 49 with Justin Ritchie and 51 with Bas van Rauven and with you in episode 57. So why are there so many different types of scenarios and ways to classify and name them? (laughs) And how do all these scenarios fit together for someone who just wants to know how we get from where we're at now to two degrees or 1.5? Oh, we're just trying to confuse the hell out of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. And there were two and a half thousand global scenarios submitted to the database. So there's a lot of scenarios. And Mm. I'll come back to that. But just... A couple of backward steps. So the SSPs, the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, there was a few episodes around episodes 50 where we discussed those and different people. Yeah. So I don't want to sort of go into the gory details of those again. Right. But just to say that those SSPs were constructed, you know, they were published, let's say, around about 2015. And the original idea came back to 2010 or so, a little bit earlier, actually. And the reason... for developing these scenarios is essentially the climate modelers running their big climate models. Their models are so resource intensive, take so long to run, they needed scenarios straight away in a sense. And this SSP framework was one way for them to meet their needs and the integrated assessment modelers to meet their needs as well. So these SSPs were published around 2015 and then they were starting to be fed into these big climate models. And now we're 2022, the SSPs are old now. They're out of date. 
So the working group one reports, because the scenarios, that's the physical science report from the IPCC, their scenarios were based on a small selection, about five of these SSPs. And they had no choice because it takes so long for them to run their models. And in the intervening period from, let's say, 2015 up to today, as I said, there's about two and a half thousand global scenarios were submitted to this database. And this database is essentially assessed in the Working Group 3 report in Chapter 3, where I'm sitting. So of those two and a half thousand scenarios, they had to go through a vetting process. So basically, if they didn't meet certain criteria, we'll just put them in the bin. So, for example, if they didn't replicate emission levels in 2015 or that type of thing, then we would throw them out. There's an uncertainty band. We have a quite generous window for them to go through. But if they don't go through a historical window, then we throw them out. If they have 20 billion tonnes of carbon capture and storage in 2020, we throw them out. And when you go through that process, we ended up with about 1,700 scenarios. Of those, <laughs> about 1,200 got a climate assessment. And that means the scenario was allocated at 1.5 degrees or 2.31 degrees or whatever the outcome was. And there's only 1,200 because you need to have a minimum amount of data. You need CO2 and methane and a few other things to get a climate assessment. And if you have that information, then the scenario is gap filled for any other missing information, maybe organic carbon emissions or something, and then it gets a climate assessment. We could talk about this for hours. Oh, boy. Yeah, because there's a few issues there. But 1,200 scenarios, what do you do with 1,200 scenarios? And we put them into boxes, basically. So there's a box, which is 1.5 degrees with no or low overshoot. There's a box for 1.5 degrees with high overshoot, you know, all the way up a box for four degrees and we're going to die type. Hmm. And these boxes, if you like, are quite consistent with the way the scenarios were categorized in the special report on 1.5 degrees from 2018. So this C1 category is pretty much directly comparable to the 1.5 degrees with no and low overshoot and so on. So on top of that, almost there, we have these IMPs, these illustrative mitigation pathways. And maybe we can dig into these a little bit more later, but just a quick background there is in the 1.5 degree reports, from 2018, there were four illustrative pathways and everyone pretty much remembers these pathways. You know, one with low level of carbon dioxide removal, one with sort of medium, medium high, and then really high. And everyone picked their favorite, which was the first one, low energy demand scenario. But this was extremely successful in the communication of the 1.5 degree report. And essentially the background thinking here is trying to replicate that process but there's more illustrative pathways now. They're more sort of complex in what they're trying to portray. They're not as high profile through the summary for policymakers or the report. So I'm not sure that they'll catch on, but we can dig into those in a little bit more detail in a minute, but that gives you an idea. So just summarizing SSPs, they were done for the climate modelers. So they sit in the working group one physical science report. We have 1200 scenarios with a climate assessment which we put into different boxes so we can try and analyze the average statistics and then there's these illustrative mitigation pathways which are trying to describe different characteristics of different scenarios 
And I hope you all got that. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm really glad you explained that. Thank you for that. It is incredibly complex. And I sort of despair on how many journalists are going to be able to <laughs> to really unpack this, get their heads around it. I mean, it requires some serious study to understand this stuff. And then you have to really understand it at a pretty good level in order to be able to communicate it in anything other than a very high level, shallow sort of a way which has also been a problem, I think, for the longest time with respect to communicating climate science. So these warming classification levels, that these boxes, as you call them, with group different scenarios by warming levels in a new way, apart from the, the RCPs or the SSPs or anything else, they still don't really give the casual observer a clear and unambiguous understanding that under the stated policies of world governments, as I understand it, we're on track for a world somewhere between probably 1.7 degrees C in a very optimistic case and perhaps 3 degrees C. And that spans sort of the C3 through C6 classification levels. So the report itself explicitly says that global warming of 2.4 degrees to 3.5 degrees C is the median outcome by 2100 with, quote, medium confidence which seems to me to be about half a degree to the high side, at least in terms of some of the very recent studies that we've heard about, like the recent assessment by the IEA. Since the report also says that, quote, these pathways consider policies at the time they were developed, unquote, I assume that the higher range of warming there probably reflects more dated literature than what we've been discussing on this show. But there are still a bunch of other scenarios, both above and below that range. And then there are these new illustrative pathways called Kerpol for current policies, which are shown in the report as being equivalent to the greater than four degrees C warming expressed in the SSP3 7.0 scenario, but which actually lead to much lower warming outcomes than four degrees C. So that's not helping <laughs> the general understanding here either. So how should people who are just trying to get a grasp on how much progress we're making in the energy transition against our climate goals interpret the meaning of all these warming levels and scenario classifications? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews
interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. An auction for the rights to build and operate floating solar plants on dam reservoirs in Portugal raised eyebrows on April 6th when the winning bid for the biggest project, a 70-megawatt floating solar array, went to EDP Renova Vase, or EDPR, a unit of the country's main utility EDP, for the record low price of negative €4.13, or $4.50 US, for each megawatt hour it generates over 15 years. Most media coverage struggled to convey the results, which are admittedly complex, so I decided to try to sort it out. Here's what I found. Last year, the Portuguese government launched its first commercial floating solar market, setting a target to procure 500 megawatts of floating PV capacity in furtherance of its target of achieving 80% renewable energy by 2030. Successful bidders were awarded package leases for the water surface areas, water surveys, and, most importantly, grid interconnections. Developers were given the choice of bidding for 15-year contracts for difference, or CFDs, or fixed payments, which would then be compared on a net present value basis. For the floating solar auction, the NPV for the CFD bids is the difference between the bid price and the estimated market prices over 15 years, while for fixed payment bids, the NPV is the total fee. So that negative 4 euro price, if I have this right, and if I don't, please write to me and explain it, isn't actually a payment that EDF has to make to deliver power to the grid, but rather just 4 euros below the reference price in the auction. In the latest auction, EDPR not only got the 70 megawatt solar contract guaranteed for 15 years, it also won the right to deploy 14 megawatts of additional solar and 70 megawatts of hybrid wind capacity at the site, reportedly with some unspecified amount of storage thrown in, all of which it can use to sell power to the market for 41 euros per megawatt hour as soon as it's operational, and all with a 154 megawatt grid interconnection guaranteed for a period of 30 years. So as long as the whole project, including 15 years of market rate production from the 70 megawatt solar array after its initial 15-year PPA is up, can generate enough profit to cover a 4 euro per megawatt hour discount against forecast grid power prices, which, in my opinion, are likely to err on the high side, I think they'll do just fine. And that 41 euro per megawatt hour will look cheap. In early April, when the news was reported, power was selling for 250 euros per megawatt hour in the Iberian wholesale market, and in 2021, prices averaged 112 euros. EDP already operates 5 gigawatts, or almost three-quarters, of the hydroelectric capacity in Portugal. This summer, the company is building a 5-megawatt floating solar project at a 518-megawatt pumped hydro plant it owns, building on a prior 220-kilowatt pilot project it has been operating since 2016. Item 2. It's not exactly news anymore, but I thought I'd report it anyway since I stumbled across it in the research for the previous item. The largest floating solar array in the U.S. was installed a year ago in Healdsburg, California. The 4.8 megawatt Healdsburg floating solar project was installed on ponds at a... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at MikeSugarMusic.com. 
The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.